0: Welcome to Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic Science, Modern Shamanism, Neuroscience, New Paradigm Lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. Hey there inner cosmonauts, Lorna here, and I just want to share with you an epic win that our guest today, Rick Doblin, was instrumental in securing for the medical use of MDMA in the treatment of PTSD. Okay, so that's a lot of acronyms. MGMA is an illegal drug that acts as both a stimulant and a psychedelic, producing an energizing effect, as well as distortions in time and perception, and enhanced enjoyment from tactile experiences. Now I'm not even going to try to pronounce its full scientific name on air. It has 29 characters in it, but you should just go to our show notes at ntheonation.com four to find out how to spell MDMA in full. Now, MDMA is often referred to as an empathogen, and theogens awaken the divine within. Empathogens make you really tuned in to the feelings of other people in what can be described as an empathic, compassionate, loving way. It has also that ability to make you feel all those things things towards yourself. Self-love, self-forgiveness, self-acceptance. MDMA can be totally heart-opening. Which is why it can be really effective in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, because it can be cathartic for people who have gone through a lot of intense trauma to experience universal love for others, and most importantly, for themselves. Well, thanks to the work of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MDMA may be legal as a medical drug in as little as five years. Check out the story at mtheonation.com slash four. If you would like to receive the transcript to Rick Doblin's interview, text Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N to the number 44222 to get access to our transcript directory, which is only available to bona fide citizens of Entheonation. You will receive an SMS from us, so simply reply to it with your best email to get onto our mailing list and never miss an episode. Now on to the show. Hello, beautiful visionaries of Enthio Nation. This is Lorna Liana for yet another episode. And today we are here with Rick Doblin, who is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS. He received his doctorate in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he wrote his dissertation on the regulation of the medical uses of psychedelics and marijuana. Rick studied with Dr. Stanislav Groff and was among the first to be certified as a holotropic breathwork practitioner. His professional goal is to become a legally licensed psychedelic therapist. Now, Rick is at the forefront of modern day psychedelic research and the battle for legalization. So he's going to share with us what he and his organization, MAPS, has been doing and researching in this frontier. So welcome to our show, Rick.
1: Thank you for having me, on. This is a great opportunity Thank you. I'm just recovering from a cold.
0: Not a problem at all. I'm so grateful to have you here on the show. I'd love to ask you to share with us, what was your visionary journey like that led you to start MAPS and uh, the work that you're doing right now?
1: Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a terrific question, and I uh, will try to uh, respond in a pretty succinct way. So basically, I was born in the United States in 1953, You know, shortly after World War II. And I have um, a lot of Israeli relatives, Jewish relatives, some killed in the Holocaust. So as I was um, being raised, I was being raised in a sort of cocoon of safety in the United States, but educated about the Holocaust. And it was just terrifying. So I kind of had second-generation trauma, you could say, from learning about it. And then as I got older, I was involved with the... um, Cuban Missile Crisis involved, meaning just a young child when it happened, and this whole idea of the uh, arms race with the Soviet Union, which a lot of people don't really think about much today, but the idea that we were building up all these weapons and we could have kind of a universal holocaust was you know, terrifying to a young kid. Um, and then sort of walking into the face of the Vietnam War. I was the last year of the lottery. so when there was still a draft. And so all of these things started making me um, look at cultural insanity and the way in which people divide themselves from others and identify in narrow ways with their religion or their nationality or their racial group or their socioeconomic status or their gender or different things, and then sort of demonize or fearful of the other. And I was inspired by um, Martin Luther King and Tolstoy and others on nonviolence and decided on um, resisting the draft and going to jail and being a um, force, I hope, for more peaceful approaches to solving conflict. But this whole time, I, I was scared of psychedelics and really felt that um, the education I'd been given was that they made you permanently crazy in certain ways. LSD was terribly dangerous, and, but, but I was sort of very politically involved. And I came across some writings of uh, Albert Einstein, who talked about the splitting of the atom has changed everything except our mode of thinking, and hence we drift towards an unparalleled catastrophe. What mankind shall require is a whole new mode of thinking if we are to survive. So I started thinking that this um, new mode of thinking is really this sort of mystical unit of state, that we understand that we're really at heart all down similar to each other, all part of the same web of life, and that if you can feel that and know that, then you're likely to be less prejudiced and more accepting and less willing to resort to violence. So that was kind of my political growth as I became a draft resistor and prepared, I thought, to go to jail. Then when I went to college, I first started trying psychedelics, and I found that what I had been taught about them really was completely wrong there are dangers for sure, but that they also had incredible potential to bring uh, the unconscious to the forefront, to bring things that people had suppressed, and also to help us feel our connections. And people have used these drugs for thousands of years for that exact purpose. And this was 1971, 72, that I was coming on to these realizations. But that was after the backlash and the crackdown against the 60s, and all these drugs had been criminalized. And the research had been shut down all over the world and this big overreaction against the the sort of connection between the people that were using psychedelics and the social turmoil, the protests against the Vietnam War, the environmental movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement. a lot of people really did get inspired by their psychedelic experiences to challenge the status quo. So as I started realizing all of this and wanted to get involved, and realizing that the research was shut down, and then thinking that because I was a draft resistor and was anticipating going to jail, I could never become a licensed doctor or lawyer or anything that would be prohibited because I would have this criminal record, I thought, well, the most important thing I could do is to try to bring back psychedelic research, and bring back psychedelics, and fight the drug war, and try to take these technologies of the sacred, these technologies of healing, and bring them back into a legal mainstream part of our society. So at age 18 in 1972 is really when I had the initial vision that this is what I wanted to do for my life. I recently have turned 61, and I see that after all of these years, things are actually starting to develop in that direction. And I think our culture in general, you know, too much, too fast, too soon with the emerging consciousness that uh, the psychedelics can bring in the 60s, that it, the culture wasn't ready for it. Um, you know, the other big thing at the time, of course, was the, the going to the moon and the whole idea of seeing the earth from space and getting a sense of the whole earth. All of that was part of that consciousness. And so I think what's happened over the last um, 40 years plus is that the culture has matured in a lot of different ways. We've had a, we have a much better attitude towards death, towards birth, towards spirituality, towards yoga, towards meditation. We're uh, seeing ayahuasca spread throughout the Western world and a lot of people being inspired by it. And a lot of people that had early psychedelic experiences in their uh, younger years are now retiring. Baby boomers are retiring and they've often made major contributions to the world. Um, Most of them have given up their use of psychedelics. Some look back on it fondly. So I think that the world itself is now ready and primed for the psychedelics. And at the same time, we really see a rise of fundamentalism, a retreat from this globalization. And I think the antidote to fundamentalism is mysticism. And there's a lot of different ways for people to Experience it. I don't mean to imply that psychedelics are the only way. So they're certainly not. People can get to these experiences all different ways. But I do believe that psychedelics are one of the historically uh, most powerful catalysts that people have used for thousands of years. And that as a culture, what we desperately need to do is to um throw off the shackles of prohibition and learn to use wisely the potential of these uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness. Because it's really not about the drugs. It's about the states of consciousness. It's about what what happens during those states. And I think we all, uh, every night, you know, go to sleep and we all have dreams. And there's this uh, rise into consciousness of unconscious material. And it's a natural phenomena. And a lot of us get, you know, deep emotions, insights, various... Um, benefits from paying attention to dreams. I think we should think of psychedelics as just as natural as dreaming, that they bring out what's within us already and that we should learn how to respond to that, how to integrate it. And I think the um, killings that we recently just saw in Paris of people that were so fragile in their fundamentalism that they couldn't even tolerate any kind of uh, cartoons that would mock or, you know, call the question their rigid beliefs, that that kind of thinking um, is actually prevalent in billions and billions of people, not the murderous aspect of it, but just this idea that, you know, the the other is to be feared and that we need to hold on rigidly to certain ideas. And so I think this uh, movement toward global spirituality is really what we're wrestling with on a a large scale. I think the integration of psychedelics into culture can play a major role in the healing process to help us deal with the challenges of today.
0: Mm, wow. That's really profound. Um, I love what you just said around the antidote to fundamentalism is mysticism. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, so I want to you know, take you to the work of MAPS. If you could share with us, uh, you know, when did you launch MAPS and what does MAPS actually uh, hope to do? What's your vision and mission with this organization? So I
1: had this uh, idea of what I wanted to do when I was 18 in 1972, but I was really not prepared. And for me, I was overdeveloped uh, overdeveloped intellectually, but underdeveloped emotionally and spiritually. And so I started working to uh, bring myself into balance. And I felt like as a larger culture, we are overdeveloped technologically. I mean, the fact that we're talking, we're seeing each other, we're separated by a whole continent, you know, it's a miracle. It's incredible. The, the, Development that technology has gone to and will go to, and yet our emotional and spiritual capacity to deal with the technology really isn't there. So, I spent a 10 year process, and I'm still, of course, on it, trying to get balanced enough where I could work in the world focusing on psychedelics. And so, in 1982, I went back to college, I had dropped out after my first semester, and went to a seminar at Esalen. Institute in Big Sur with Stan Groff, and some uh, uh, people there came by and talked about MDMA, which was still legal, and I was like, wow, this is really an interesting idea. There's psychedelics that are legal. There's this underground psychedelic therapy movement that I didn't even know about, Um, and so I started paying more and more attention to it, and I thought, unfortunately, this drug MDMA is already being sold as ecstasy in public settings. It began as a therapy drug. It escaped into sort of the public settings, uh, recreational settings, and it was the Nancy Reagan "Just Say No" escalation of the war on drugs. So it was clear that there was going to be a crackdown against uh, ecstasy. And so I started trying to um, educate various people, prepare for the crackdown. I felt like I woke up to LSD um, a little bit too late after the crackdown and had happened in the backlash. But here I was learning about MDMA before the backlash. So I started a nonprofit organization in 84 to defend MDMA when the inevitable uh, repression came down. And shortly after that, the DEA did move to criminalize. We sued the DEA in the administrative law judge courts and tried to protect the therapeutic use. We actually won in the administrative law judge context. But then the administrator of the DEA overruled the judge and said, no, we're we're going to criminalize MDMA and stop all the therapeutic use. And we sued in the appeals court, we won, and then we won again. Eventually, we lost. And so I realized that in our culture at that time, in the middle 80s, and even still now, that science really and medicine were the only way that I could see practically to work through the culture's fears and try to bring back these substances into some legal context. And if we want to talk about medical marijuana and marijuana legalization, that did begin with the medicalization of marijuana. So that was my intuition. And in 1986, then, I started MAPS, which was um, basically designed as a nonprofit pharmaceutical company trying to take drugs that were off patent. MDMA was invented in 1912 by Merck. Um, You know, LSD was invented in 1938 by Sandoz. Mescaline was first synthesized in, uh, I think it was like uh, 1896. You know, these are all drugs, psilocybin, mushrooms. Um, Psilocybin was synthesized in the 50s. So all these drugs are in the public domain. They're not something that can be patented the way the pharmaceutical companies like to do it. And at the same time, because the federal government, which sports most uh, scientific research, a lot of scientific research, was also deeply in involved in the war on drugs. There was no federal money. Uh, Actually, the last time that the National Institute of Mental Health Health funded psychedelic research was in 1966. They were big funders in the 50s and 60s. So support from the government wasn't going to be happening. Support from the pharmaceutical companies weren't going to be happening. And the major foundations were running the other way. And so MAPS was started as a nonprofit pharmaceutical company that would be able to give people tax deductions for supporting research. And, you know, at the time I didn't realize how complicated it was, how expensive it would turn out to be, but it just felt like science and medicine were the opening wedge into the culture. And so now it's um, almost 29 years since MAPS was started. Um, we are making a lot of progress with our work with MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder Uh, from war-related trauma, childhood sexual abuse, accidents, natural disasters. Um, There's a renaissance in psychedelic research. There's more psychedelic research now than at any time in the last 40 years. Um, The Hefter Research Institute is doing tremendous work with psilocybin for end-of-life, for alcoholism, for tobacco addiction, for spirituality. We see also this coming together of science and religion in ways that are historic, that have I would say, healed a split that began with uh, Copernicus and Galileo. And the church was just like your uh, burned Ber- Father Bruno at the stake, and who espoused some of the Copernican theories. And so there was this kind of truce of science and religion staying away from each other. And now I think we're coming together. We're seeing brain scan studies of meditators who then take psilocybin and talk about mystical experiences. So there's a whole realm of... psychedelic neuroscience and psychedelic spirituality and psychedelic medicine that's happening in laboratories all over the world. And we're now, as of uh, the summer of 2015 coming up, we're going to be finishing what's called phase two research, which is um, pilot studies into MDMA for PTSD. And Hefter is finishing their work with uh, psilocybin for end of life. And so we're going to be presenting all this data to FDA as part of the quest to uh, get permission for the phase three studies that are what's really going to be required. And so I think that the long efforts of MAPS began in '86. I was the only employee of MAPS for the first seven years. You know, now we've got about 14 people working and studies all over the world. Um, got about a two million dollar budget. That's Going up to uh, three million dollars, you know, we're, we're you know in dire need of more donations. If people want to um, <clears throat> support maps.org, because we are um, succeeding actually in our pilot studies, and that means that we need to scale up. Um, but I think the basic thought is that the the healing potential of these drugs is something that people will have compassion for. Um, but that it goes well beyond that, and what we're trying to do is build these um, tools into legal contexts as basically fundamental human rights. That we talk about the freedom of speech. I mean, here it is: if, if you and I were having this conversation in other countries, we might be in jail because we're talking about illegal drugs, um, and we might we're talking about uh, mysticism rather than fundamentalism. And, You know, so the the fact that we have this freedom of speech is something incredibly precious to be honored and respected. But at the same time, you know, the freedom of the press, the freedom of uh, distributing these ideas. But underneath the freedom of speech and the freedom of press is the freedom of thought. Mm -hmm. We have this ability to explore our own ideas and our own consciousness. And psychedelics are a part of that. So I think future generations and more and more people now will understand the struggle to bring uh, psychedelics, to bring the religious use of ayahuasca, the religious use of peyote, the religious use of psilocybin mushrooms, all of these things into a legal context is part of a core human rights struggle in order to promote the freedom of thought, the freedom of religion, and that the war on drugs and prohibition is just one of the most massive violations of human rights and racist and prejudiced and just terribly counterproductive. So I think that the the broader mission here is really to try to look back at the foundations of Western culture. And when we do that, we learn about the Eleusinian Mysteries, which were the longest-run mystery cero- ceremonies in the history of the world, foundations of Greek thought, Greek-Western thought, and ran for about 2,000 years and ended in 396, wiped out by the Catholic Church that wanted to be an intermediary between people and God. Whereas the Osinian Mysteries involved a psychedelic drug and people had this uh, ecstatic experience of union. And that lasted them and educated them for the rest of their lives. And that, that, uh, there's a book by Albert Hoffman and Gordon Wasson and Karl Ruck about uh, Eleusis. And so, in a sense, we're trying to build a new elusis that people in the Western cultures and all over the world would be able to access these states of consciousness beyond just treating an illness. I mean, medicine is about treating a diagnosable condition. And that's really very important. But we're all sort of spiritually sick, and we all need to grow, and we have these crises as we age at different parts of the life cycle. So I think this idea of psychedelics for... The growth process for healthy people, facing challenges that we all face just as human beings and dealing with life and dealing with death and dealing with growth and maturation, that the work that we're trying to do is to open the door through medicine, help people understand <clears throat> that we can develop context. So this is what I worked on at Harvard in my PhD on how do we regulate the medical use so that we can develop contexts where the risks are more than outweighed by the benefits. And once we can do that, then we can start expanding throughout um, the society and throughout the legal and regulatory system to get to a point where people's basic human rights to explore their consciousness and their spirituality are respective. So that's um, you know, 29 years so far from when MAPS was started. This will take another You know 20 30 years but i think that with by um, 2021 is when we're hoping to have mdma approved as a prescription medicine and hopefully uh, psilocybin will be approved by them as well there's research even going on now with lsd it's uh you know the quintessential symbol of the 60s is now being studied and study we just finished the first therapeutic Uh, study of LSD in over 40 years in Switzerland with LSD for people with uh, anxiety related to uh, end-of-life issues.
0: So I'd love to hear, you know, some examples. It sounds like there are um, really promising um, results from using, so you mentioned MDMA for PTSD and then psilocybin for end-of-life and then, you know, many studies around, you know, LSD as well. Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation. that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. What are some of the, do you have any personal stories of how these um, substances, these drugs are actually, you know, helping change the lives of some of the uh, test subjects that are uh, participating in these studies?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of stories, actually. Um, One of the, um, I think, more poignant stories is about Rachel Hope, who I think people, if they want to uh, Google her. You know, at some other time, she's done a lot of media appearances. She was a woman who had suffered from childhood sexual abuse and was uh, severely traumatized because of that. And she had tried all sorts of therapies; none of them worked. She was depressed, um, suicidal at times, and she volunteered for our first study of MDMA for post traumatic stress. And she was able to work through the trauma that she had been suffering from for decades and now is really living a full and vibrant life. And I think her testimonial, it, she talked about her brain lighting up like a Christmas tree under the influence of MDMA and things that had terrified her before uh, the, the trauma that she was able to look at it, accept it and move on. And I think the part of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is that people they're not able to really process the trauma because it's so scared, but they're not able to really get it out of their minds either. Mm-hmm. And so what they need to do is really process that at a deep level where they're feeling safe. Mm-hmm. And then the memory can be reconsolidated consolidated in such a way so that it's an event that happened to them, but it's not a trigger for fear. And so we're about, and what we find with MDMA, what Rachel found too is that, It brings back memories of the trauma that have been too painful so that it actually enhances your connection to your past. It's not like you take it, you feel ecstasy, you feel great, and then it goes away. It's that you actually remember more, but you learn from it and you realize that you're looking at it from a point of safety and that the trauma that happened to you has molded you, but it doesn't define you and you can move on into the future. Uh, we've had other uh, people that were uh, firefighters that were uh, traumatized by caught in a fire where a bunch of their uh, fellow firefighters were killed and they were then uh, disabled, unable to work. It was really frightening for, for, for them. And so we had several firefighters in our study who under the influence of MDMA were able to look at the fire, remember whole portions of it that they had forgotten. But again, be able to move on with their lives. We've had people that war-related uh, trauma from Iraq and Afghanistan, even from Vietnam. Um, there's some terrific stories of people that had been traumatized for decades since Vietnam who were able, under the influence of MDMA, to recognize that time is precious, that that was them, that they can recover from it and you know step into their lives again, which had sort of been put on hold for 40 years. We have a study right now at um, Harbor UCLA in Los Angeles for um, adults on the autism spectrum with social anxiety. And MDMA is helping those people to read body language, to understand their own emotions. Um, MDMA stimulates oxytocin and prolactin, which are hormones of love and bonding. They bring uh, connections so that uh, people have been able to sort of improve their social lives as a result of a few experiences of MDMA. We've had um, studies that we did with ayahuasca and the treatment of addiction that was done up in uh, British Columbia. And so it was like Peruvian shaman went up to British Columbia and worked with First Nations people that had horrible traumatic lives, mediated by uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, a psychiatrist, helped add a sort of psychotherapeutic tone to the experiences And they were able to confront their own uh, issues with addiction. Uh, There's people that were addicted to opiates that have been able to use the drug Ibogaine, which is a Mm -hmm. drug from Western Africa, which a long history of therapeutic use and people have gotten over addiction. So there's a whole range of stories about how people have been able to use psychedelic therapy uh, in a way to overcome... uh, various struggles and get more engaged in uh, the precious life that they have.
0: What is the basis for the criminalization of these uh, drugs? Because from my understanding, um, uh, a number of these drugs that are considered to be schedule one are not, uh, the fatality rate is extremely low, like compared to some of the other uh, substances out there in the market that are um, available at any drug, you know, any supermarket and <laughs> drug store and, uh, you know, corner store. So, you know, Let's take MDMA as an example. Why on earth is it illegal?
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, complex factors, but bas- basically um, the war on drugs is about um, 100 years old or so. Um, you know, all these drugs in the late uh, 1890s, uh, early 1900s were legal. I mean, some of these drugs like MDMA didn't even exist, uh, you know, until 1912 when MDMA was first, but in LSD in 38 and 43, where it was really discovered. But the war on drugs began as a racist operation um, against the Chinese in the United States. They did come over and build the railroads, and they were uh, successful. They built the railroads, and then now they're um, competing for uh, other jobs with, uh, quote, Americans. Um, And so they tended to use opium, and other people didn't. So the first laws uh, against drugs were against the Chinese use of opium. And it was not to protect the Chinese. It was a racist situation. You know, marijuana was criminalized in the 30s, in the middle of the depression, after the end of alcohol prohibition. We had all these people that had, you know, jobs doing uh, prohibition agents for alcohol. We found that, of course, that didn't work in the 20s, and shortly after that, uh, marijuana became illegal. And marijuana was used in the middle of the depression again by Mexicans and blacks. That was. Uh, again a racist situation if you look at some of the testimony in congress by Harry Anslinger who criminalized marijuana it was um incredibly racist so we we then move into uh the 60s where marijuana becomes widespread psychedelics start getting used a lot and they're associated with people that are challenging the status quo and so the ramp up of the war on drugs was there Not so much racist, but then it became a political overlay against people who were challenging the status quo. The Beatles talked about, you know, make love, not war, and give peace a chance, and they were extremely identified with LSD. So all of that ended up um, overlaying political repression on the sort of back of racist repression, and then you get people making money off of psychedelic, off of the criminalization, off of the drug war, this vast underground that, so then you have all these economic reasons why a lot of people in order to keep it in play. And then you have the whole classic situation of politicians demonizing the other and displacing people's fears. So the problems are now drugs. There's these other things and we need police. So then it becomes a way for the governments to just demonstrate their raw power and to mm-hmm. prohibit certain things. All of this gets wrapped up into the 80s, where we have Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan and the uh, incredible escalation of the drug war that they did also for political purposes. And that's when MDMA uh, came to the public attention in the midst of this escalation of the drug war. And I think the core thing that, that you pointed to is it's not scientific. It's not related to the risks of these drugs, which drugs are criminal. It's got a whole other political racist aspect to it. And that's one of the reasons why war on drugs is such a violation of human rights.
0: You know, I'm really glad that you brought that up because, you know, in my experience and in my travels, you know, I do encounter a lot of, um, you know, the, the belief, the mainstream belief system or paradigm that's out there that's being perpetuated by these powers, these governments, is that the reason why these drugs are illegal is because they're bad for you. Right. And so th- and and so it's really great to just kind of like rip the you know veil off that you know fallacy because it really isn't true when you look at the deep underlying reasons as to why um you know drugs are legal and especially when you start looking at the economic incentives around this like i mean you know just keeping the DEA like in operation and employed you know that's a lot of jobs right here so we got to give them some reason to you know wake up in the morning i guess guess, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, being able to determine, sorry.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the prison guards, the prison industrial complex. Yeah. But I think we have to be careful not to go the other way to say that drugs have no risks. So the mm-hmm. government basically does is says these drugs are uh, illegal because they're dangerous and they have no benefits. And so it would be, um, Uh, a a mistake for us to say these drugs have tremendous benefits and no risks Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there are risks the ending of the war on drugs moving to a post-prohibition world is not going to solve all drug problems in fact with psychedelics as we're talking about they open up the uh, the doorways to the unconscious and that there are always going to be challenges there's always going to be difficult experiences that if people have a problematic setting their attitude toward it the context they're doing it in isn't Supportive, then people can end up worse
0: off. Yes, that's very, very true. So, in an ideal world, you know, with uh, the legalization of um, psychedelics and, you know, marijuana, I don't know if you would consider marijuana to be a psychedelic medicine, but, um, you know, in an ideal world, how would we be able to fully benefit from the therapeutic? um, potentials of these drugs and yet, you know, be able to kind of be, be aware and educated about the af- appropriate and proper use, you know, safe use of these things so that we can minimize negative experiences and, uh, uh, further trauma.
1: I think that's a question that could have a whole other, uh, half hour answer.
0: Wow. Uh-huh. Okay. But, but it's a great
1: question. Uh, you know, how do we regulate these drugs, uh, in such a way so that we really maximize their benefits and acknowledge their risks. And I think that the um, answer to that is is really um, fairly complicated. If we look at what's going on in our culture with alcohol and tobacco, we should say that those are not, you know, great successful examples mm-hmm. of how uh, mind-altering drugs should be regulated. Um, maybe, but I don't think they should be prohibited, obviously. So prohibition doesn't work. We need, I think, the fundamental thing is we need honest drug education, and we need people to really understand the risks and the benefits. Most people now have been educated in, um, or I should say, miseducated by their governments about the risks of these drugs, have been told that they, um, you know, are so dangerous that people should go to prison for even sharing them or introducing them to others, um, But that even with ayahuasca, that, you know, that's got this traditional use, there are people that are destabilized by their use of ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. It's a very challenging situation. So I think we need honest drug education. We need, um, the more dangerous a drug is, the more important it is that it be legal because we want people who have problems with the drugs not to feel stigmatized to come and get support. Uh, We need pure drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, a lot of people are dying from uh, ecstasy that's not really MDMA, that's Drugs that are more dangerous. People died. Uh, I just read in the paper the other day that there was, um, it was in Africa, Mozambique, I think it was, 56 people or so died from beer, a certain kind of beer that had a poison
0: in it. The, you know what the poison was? The, they uh, found it to be crocodile bile. Yeah. That is bizarre. Why would you put that in beer unless someone was intentionally trying to kill people? I don't know. Like. Yeah, yeah, I
1: went that myself. So we read the same article. So yeah. we've got this idea that, um, you know, the purity of drugs has got to be one of the fundamental um, underpinnings of their safe use. And we saw that during Prohibition in the 20s, too. A lot of people made alcohol incorrectly, and people died from different kinds of uh, concentrations that were, were really unhealthy, So and different admixtures. So honest drug education, building in a culture that teaches people to respect what these drugs do. They're very powerful. You need to be able to um, acknowledge that when difficult experiences happen, you have to work with them rather than try to suppress them. And we need um, a system of support for people to get into trouble with them, that that get Mm in over their heads. And I think um, we're not going to solve all the problems with uh, legalization, but, um, it'll be a lot better for those people that do have problems and there'll be way more people that experience the benefits.
0: What about the new classes of drugs that are coming out? The ones that have been highly, that have been synthesized in a lab. I occasionally see articles around different designer drugs. And so what is your take on how to kind of incorporate these new psychedelics into, um, into the mix?
1: Yeah, well, uh, keep in mind that LSD was synthesized in a lab. MDMA is synthesized in a the lab. They don't appear in nature. So mm-hmm. I think the fundamental thing I would say, first off, is that there's a romantic notion that if it comes from a plant, it's good. Uh-huh. If it comes from a uh, lab, it's somehow bad. And what we just talked about, crocodile bile, comes from crocodiles. You know, It comes from nature, but it kills you. So I would say that um, the... the Question is is really um, all these new things that are being invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we know what their risks are? We need a certain amount of testing, and ideally we would have uh, systems whereby um, they're tested for their safety, and then we understand what they do. Rather than underground chemists make them and just sell sell them without knowing really what they are, like PMMA, which is often sold as uh, MDMA. Influences body temperature in a way um, more dramatically than MDMA does, and it's weaker than MDMA. So people take it; they think that they really have bad, weak MDMA cut with something else. They take more of it, and then they overheat and die. Mm. So all these different designer drugs; some of them can be um, tremendously useful, and some of them can be tremendously dangerous. And we need to um, just really get them into a system of testing where we understand what they are rather than just you know suppressing it all and having some new thing come out that, <laughs> that people don't really know really what it does. Mm-hmm. We have such good science now. We can evaluate pretty well uh, the risks and benefits of different drugs under different contexts.
0: Hmm. Fantastic. So we're about at the end of our interview segment. I would love to leave you with uh, my favorite question to ask visionaries. Mm-hmm. How, have your visionary experiences connected you with your life purpose?
1: hundred ah, percent. I mean, it was really the, uh, the use of LSD. Uh, well, this might be a good way to end this. Um, so, you know, when I first started doing, uh, LSD, when I was uh, 17 years old, my first thought was this feeling of, of connection, this feeling of openness, this feeling of, um, I would say, the, the the reality of the unconscious and this way that things are connected. I thought, this is doing what my bar mitzvah didn't do. <laughs> and this is something that should be uh, more wide, widely uh, legalized, and I, I need more help with it as well myself. So that, that was it. My first early experiences led me to think this is a, a tool for spiritual growth and personal growth, and our society has criminalized it out of a reactionary fear-based uh, mistake and that we need to bring it back.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing with us your stories and your um, your vast research on this topic. How can we best stay in touch with you?
1: Maps.org. Um, we have an email newsletter that is, um, comes out free every month and you can find out what we're doing and you could write ask maps at maps.org. And if there's questions for me, um, we have staff that will filter them and bring them to me. So, it's pretty easy to stay in touch.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, and you have a beautiful day.
1: Great. Thank you, Larna.
0: Isn't it so refreshing to talk to somebody who is as passionate about their work as Rick? MAPS does incredible research and policy work, but what I love most about them are their epic charity fundraisers. Their far out 30th anniversary fundraiser in Oakland, California, featured a psychedelic performance by the visionary artist Android Jones and was essentially the who's who of San Francisco Bay Area Psychedelic Society. Get on the mailing list to get my full report on the trippiest charity ball of the year. Simply text Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222, and reply to the SMS with your best email address to receive consciousness-raising content delivered straight to your inbox. Now I'm going to close this episode with a lovely track called Moonlight Tango from the album Ancestors and Guardians by Kaminanda.